given this rate that we saw in the last month, what will the next month be? Therefore, how, how bad will it really get? And I'd update that every month. And it looked like, you know, it was getting worse and worse for about half a year. And then I could finally see some light at the end of the tunnel. By that time, the shares had halved in value. Right? So it lost 50% on that trade. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by my How to Start Building Your Wealth Investing in the Stock Market online course, the complete proven step-by-step -step course to guide you from novice to confident investor. To get your 35% discount on this course, go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Wim Steamers. Wim, are you ready to rock? I am indeed, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> so, Wim has a 30-year career working in over 40 countries around the world, of which the last 20 years were spent in fund management at Alliance Bernstein. Macquarie, Colonial First State, and AL Capital, where he currently works. While educated at University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, he always has had his doubts about the efficient market hypothesis. And he followed the development of behavioral finance over the years with keen interest. While he has a traditional fund management role at AL Capital, he spends his free time, this is a bad sign, Wim, spending your free time working yep he spends his free time with his rose valley funds where he puts into action what he has suspected for a long time that there has to be a way to take advantage of the systematic biases that exist in human behavior that's darn interesting whim take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life so what you didn't say i grew up in holland in europe I was educated partly there and then, as you mentioned, in the Chicago Booth School of Business. I stayed around in the U.S. after that for a while. I moved back to Europe for a while. I moved back to the U.S. again. And then I've also lived in London and I now live in Sydney where we just had our 10-year anniversary. So I've lived, lived on quite a few continents. Another highlight of my life, which I like to talk about, although this is not the podcast to do that, in between jobs at some point earlier in my life, I, I did a, a long trip through Africa from Cape Town to Cairo overland, which was a, a very, interesting, very wow. interesting trip. How long did that take? It took four and a half months. <laughs> That's exciting. I mean, I have not been to Africa and I'm, I've recently got more and more students coming from Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and I'm really looking forward to get there someday when we can fly again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, now will not be the time. Exactly. I think it may now, be a while. <laughs> now, you piqued my interest with the Rose Valley funds that you talked about, you know, that we talked about in your bio. And keep in mind that, you know, my mom's listening and she okay. needs it to be explained very simply. But I'm definitely interested in what you're saying is that, you know, there has to be a way to take advantage of systematic biases. And you and I have talked about this briefly before. But maybe you could just give the, the little elevator pitch about what it is that you're doing there. Um, so 
Okay, in a nutshell. So efficient markets has been sort of the, the go-to theory of how markets work for a long time. But efficient markets are based on the premise that people are rational, profit-maximizing, almost machines, right? And that was the underlying assumption of pretty much every economic theory, every classical economic theory, and therefore also a finance theory, and it was kind of accepted, and that's the way things were. Until this whole idea of behavioral economics started to gain ground, and, and this is where people say, well, wait a minute, that's not how people behave. People do not always behave rationally, and people do not always you know, seek maximum utility, as economists call it. Now, the initially, the, the classical economist would say, well, yes, there's randomness. It all will cancel each other out. Behavioral economists and initially kind of psychologists, you know, Daniel Kahneman and you know, people like that, they then actually showed that people do not behave rationally. They behave, quote unquote, irrationally, but they do so in predictable ways. So they make the same, quote, quote unquote, error in the same direction. And there's you know, all these things, they call them biases and heuristics, you know, the loss aversion. You feel a pain more intense than you feel the equivalent, and you enjoy the equivalent gain. Things like that. Mental accounting, you know, you, you should think about your pool of money as one pool, but what do you do in reality? You save money for vacation in a savings account that pays you 1%, and you spend money on a credit card, and you roll it over at 20%. Right. That is utter stupidity, and yet people do it. Right? Those kinds of behaviors, if you compare that kind of behavior to the rational behavior that underlies efficient markets, logically you would, you would expect that that kind of behavior would distort security prices in a systematic, predictable way. And that's what Roosevelt Funds is trying to take advantage of. So efficient market says, this is supposed to happen. Behavioral finance says, no, that's not how people behave. They make errors in this particular direction. If you're aware of that. You know, and, how is it, and how is it going as far as being able to capitalize on that? Look, you know, when I started, I obviously did what, what people tend to do with these kinds of things. You do a back test, you go get a lot of data, do 25-year back test, which showed a roughly 10% per year outperformance relative to the market. Which is huge um, for listeners been, that aren't that familiar with it. That's a huge outperformance from a back test. Is, right, I agree. I started about so running real money about 20 months ago. So that period includes you know, the sort of market meltdown uh, the last three months of 2018. Mm. You know, good markets in 2019 and then the coronavirus events in the last few months. And I'm currently about 20% ahead of the index in those 20 months. So it's sort of performing according to the back test, even through these very, very volatile times, which I think is pretty encouraging. That's exciting. And uh, for the listeners out there, you know, women and I have actually known each other for a long time. I was an analyst on the sell side going out and traveling around the world, talking about stocks and banks, in particular in Thailand. And so I met Wim at probably the first meeting was in, I think, New York at your offices there, but I can't remember that. But it's nice to think that, you know, we could stay in touch for this long. But I think that 
what I remember about our first encounter or our first or second encounter was the level of detail that you looked at, you know, the companies, the banks, the, you know, those types of things. And I felt like that was really exciting and welcoming, you know, to, to sit down and, you know, we were kindred spirits, I think, in that way. So, uh, you know, I, I can imagine the structure and the thinking that you've got at Rose Valley is pretty exciting. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right. I'm taking the liberty of telling you two stories. The first one will be really short. Short and sweet, but, but it has a very important lesson. And then, then I'll go to, to the second one, which is a bit longer. So, so the first one, this was 1999. I'd been wearing glasses since I was four years old. 1999, I was, um, how old was I? <laughs> I was in my mid-30s. And this technology of doing laser operations on eyes to correct vision was relatively new. Not so new that I was an absolute guinea pig. It was kind of a proven technology, but it was quite, still quite rare, quite expensive. And I decided to do it. This incidentally was right before I went on my trip to Africa. I thought it'd be nice not to have to wear glasses on that long trip. So I did that. And you know, for people who are not familiar with it, but you, know, you go in, there's no anesthetic. You do some measurements and some stuff, you know, shine lights in your eyes and so on. Then you lie down on a table and they do their stuff with their laser. It takes about 15 minutes. Then you get up and you go home. And, you know, for at that point, 30 years, I'd not been able to see further than a meter ahead of me without glasses. And I walked out of that room and I could see. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was literally as if the sun had risen for the first time in my life. So the machine that they use is a big laser machine, cost a million dollars at the time. And it was made by a Canadian company that was listed. I forget the name now. But I walked out of that out of that operation and I thought, this is going to take the world by storm. And I bought shares in that company that made that laser equipment. And sure enough, within about a year, I had lost all my money. <laughs> the company <laughs> went bankrupt. So it's a very short story. What, what happened here, and I'll just, we'll just go straight into what's the lesson learned here. You know, buying a stock in a company because you love the company's product is not a good strategy. Right. <laughs> that, that is, you know, it's like I had done no research. I just like, this is so great. This company must be doing well. You know? So what it turned out, there were competitors that had cheaper products or better products. And, you know, so the company just didn't make it. Right? Other companies did. I was right in predicting that the laser surgery would become very commonplace and very widespread. I just was not right in thinking this was the company that was going to do well out of it. Well, it's interesting because I'm just pulling off my shelf, Peter Lynch's book, Beating the Street, and his other book, One Up on Wall Street. And, you know, in that day, in that era, Peter Lynch was, you know, pretty much a huge superstar. And he was famous for telling people, you know, invest in what you're familiar with. But, mm -hmm. of course, it may, maybe, maybe the lesson is that 
using uh, products and services that you like could be a starting point, but you still have to do your research. <laughs> exactly. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yes. All right. That's a good <laughs> so, lesson. Anyway, so let's let's go into the main story, right? So this plays out in the early 2000s, which was the time period that Asia was getting out of the Asian financial crisis, which for listeners who, who don't know this, 1997, there was a crisis in, in many countries around Asia, balance of payments crisis. What sort of underlie, was underlying it was companies in all these Asian countries, they, they borrowed in US dollars, but their revenues were in the local currency. And at some point when there was a wobble, the US money providers wanted their money back and exchange rates started to slide and people couldn't pay their money back and there was widespread bankruptcies and every other bank in Asia failed. It was a gigantic crisis which took them you know, four or five years to sort of get out of. Right? It was sort of a dry run for the global financial crisis in some ways. Except one difference um, was that in Thailand, economy fell by 11% in 1998. You know, I wonder, it certainly didn't fall that much for the 2008 crisis. I wonder about this one when we look back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in, it's, this story is about Korea. Korea, the banking system, you know, most banks got into very big trouble. Some of them got government help and, and all the rest of it. And on the way out, things we're looking and we're going to look a lot different than before the Asian financial crisis. And in Korea in particular, sort of the banking system before the crisis was individuals would deposit their money into banks, got a very low interest rates. They didn't have anywhere else to go. Interest, it was all regulated. The banks would then lend money to what's called the Chable, the big Korean conglomerates, at a decent enough spread for them to make money, but not crushingly high because the Chabol were sort of the machines of Korea's modernization. And so these Chabols, they, they, you know, the, the whole system put together certainly worked well to get Korea from a poor country at the end of the Korean War to a you know, OECD country by the turn of the century. But the Asian financial crisis sort of, you know, created enough problems and laid enough, you know, laid bare enough problems that Korea wasn't going to go back to that model. And so the banks were now going to have to pay more for their deposits because consumers were having other choices. The table as reliable customers were gone, so they had to look for other sources of assets on their balance sheets. So one of the things they discovered was credit cards. Now, credit cards hadn't really existed in Korea before. There was, before 1997, I think the only your credit card as we understand it, which means you can roll over the balance, you can actually borrow money. The only one that existed was Citibank and they had a few thousand cards outstanding in the country. There were charge cards, you know, but those were ones that were sort of you know, automatically debited at the end of each cycle. They weren't, you weren't really allowed to borrow money. It wasn't actual credit. So credit cards, they actually became a nice source of income for the banks. And then the government actually saw something there as well. The government said, hey, you know what? We like this. It's sort of a stimulation for the economy. But more importantly, when people pay with credit cards, we can actually track those transactions. And it makes it much easier for taxation purposes. 
So you know what? We are going to really put some pressure on this credit card business. Pressure in a positive sense, mm. right? So, so all these laws were introduced. I mean, you look back on it and you go like, what were they thinking? So, so they started with making it mandatory for businesses to accept credit cards. You know, and we're starting this year and every business with a turnover higher than you know, 10 million must accept credit cards. And then next year it's going to be 1 million and next the year after 100,000 and the year after just every business. Like you buy a hot dog at a street vendor, he must accept credit cards, right? That's, they went you know, from nothing being mandatory to that in about four years. And I'll, look, I'll, I'll get a lot of these details wrong, but this is the gist of it. So that was one thing. Love this one. Every credit card receipt, every credit card receipt was automatically a lottery ticket. There's some numbers on your credit card receipt. Keep them because every Friday we're going to have a lottery. We're going to collect all these numbers and, you know, there's a card to be won every Friday, right? Whatever it was. Another one, keep all your credit card receipts or, or your statements, whatever it is, you know, at the end of the year, you know, if you owe us taxes, you know, $50,000, you know, but you have, you know, but 10% of all your credit card receipts you can deduct from your taxes. Right? So, so, okay. So big, big incentives for people to use credit cards. The banks of course loved it too, because, you know, it's good business for them. And so they were, you know, raking in the applications and approving, approving the cards and, and, and so on and so forth. And so, uh, you know, a few, a few credit cards became, a few credit card companies became bigger and bigger, and actually some got listed, right? So this is the context that kind of sets the stage for Nothing story, could so. go wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let's um, think about that. Government incentivizing and encouraging. Okay, yep, that uh, usually ends up badly, but... Okay. Right. So I was at the time a junior analyst and I had prepared a research package where my recommendation was to buy the shares of Cookman Bank. Okay. Now Cookman Bank was one of these banks that had a rapidly growing credit card business and they actually had spun it off in a separate entity called Cookman Credit Card, which they had listed on the stock exchange. You know, 45% or 40, 45% of it was listed on the stock exchange, but the majority they still held, right? And it was, and you'll, you'll recognize this, a way to crystallize the value in one of your units, right? If you think the stock market isn't giving you the proper value of all your parts, you, you list part of, of what you think the stock market is undervaluing. So they had done that. At the time, uh, you know, if my memory serves me right, I had looked at both. I had opted to to suggest we invest in Cookman Bank because I thought it was more diversified, and you know, they did have a business bank and they did have a deposit business, and mm. all the rest. Of it. We went into a research review. So this is a room with with a bunch of people in the firm, and as the discussion evolved, the most senior person in the room clearly expressed a preference to play this theme of the consumer more purely than through the whole bank. So, you know, is there a way we can do this? I said, well, I suppose we could invest in Cookman credit cards, you know, this, the subsidiary. And so anyway, to make a long story short, you know, 
I was sent out of that meeting with the task to prepare a review on Kupman credit card and see if that was a good investment. So I had to do evaluation and all the rest of it. And, and, you know, I came back and said, okay, yes, you know, I could, you know, this is the growth and this is the projected cash flow, et cetera. And here's the valuation. And so, yes, let's buy this shares in this Kupman credit card. So that went through and we owned those shares. And I, you know, it's not easy to guess what's coming next. <laughs> but before we get into what's coming next, right? Mm. So, so let's go through, because this gets us later into what are the lessons learned, right? So you, know, you were saying earlier, what can go wrong, right? And it's not that we were sitting there and saying, oh, you know, this is great, end of story, right? Mm. So I'm asking all these questions, right? Well, you know, Growth is so fast, right? And then what would come back? And this is, you know, you got these answers from sell-side analysts like yourself who were covering this story and mm. from you know, the investor relations people that, you know, in the banks and in the credit card company and, you know, not just Cookman, but the other ones as well. You know, well, it, it seems fast, but, you know, Korea up until now is very much a cash society. It's actually more substituting credit cards for checks rather than anything else so it isn't really a change in risk like oh okay then what about you know it seems that you know a large part of the activity on these credit cards is cash advances which you know traditionally in other markets analysts would would regard as more risky than actual purchases mm. like ah oh, no 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 you don't really need to worry about that because you see in korea a lot of that is men, they want to go drinking, you know, when they get their salary and they don't want their wives to see it on their statement. So they just go to the ATM and get the cash out and then they go drinking. And therefore, it's not really any different or any more risky than if they would have charged, you know, their bar tap on the credit card. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Thanks. Okay. Well, what about, what if they can't pay it back, right? Oh, well, no, you see, this is Korea. And the concept of saving face is just very strong here, right? In this culture, that's just not done. So you don't have to worry about that. They will pay back there. So, you know, everything that, every every objection that you would make in your analysis, you know, every every risk factor that you would flag, essentially there was an answer for that. Yep. Right? And then, so now we'll go into what Which happens. gives you well, comfort. Right, exactly, right. So then, of course, what happened, as it turned out, you know, we probably bought very close to the peak, and arrears started to rise shortly after we bought our shares. Mm. But look, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have mattered if we were three months earlier or whatever, right? The point is, at some point, arrears started to rise. And then they started to rise more rapidly, and, of course, initially... You know, you go, you talk about it, and it's like it's a blip, it's a this, it's a that, but then it starts to rise relentlessly. And we got to the point, you know, of course, the share price starts to go down. And we got to the point where all these credit card companies in Korea, they were releasing monthly arrear stats and these, what do you call it, the, the bucket progression. So of the 30 day overdue, how much of that went into 60 days and how much got resolved and how much went into the, you know, for a 30 aging. days for the first time. The aging, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, the aging profile. And I, as, you know, the analyst responsible for 
for the stock. Of course, I built these models, you know, try and predict, you know, given this rate that we saw in the last month, what will the next month be? Therefore, how, how bad will it really get? And I'd update that every month. And it looked like, you know, it was getting worse and worse for about half a year. And then I could finally see some light at the end of the tunnel. By that time, the shares had halved in value. Right? So it lost 50% on that trade. And I remember, you know, sitting around with some other, you know, decision makers, the chief investment officer and, and the portfolio manager. And I said, you know what? We got this completely wrong, clearly. We've done all this work tracking it. I am pretty confident now that I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. The value would be X, you know, we would make all our money back in the next 18 months, except for this. When the shares are going to go up, Cookman Bank is going to take out the minorities and take it back in-house. That's my prediction. Mm. I'm very happy to say I got that one right. So, so the theoretical upside that was there at the end of the tunnel, you know, Cookman Bank kept that all to themselves because they basically took out the minority share. So we sold our shares before that happened. Mm. And you know, if we had kept them any longer, we wouldn't have had any more upside because, right. you know, as I said, the bank bought them back. So, mm. so that's, that's the there story of, of an investment where I, I lost about 50%. So what, um, what lessons did you learn from that? I think the first lesson is in that initial meeting, I did not stand up for my convictions as strongly as I should have. Mm. Now, truth be told, it, it, you know, I could comfort myself by saying it was extremely difficult. I was in a room with 10 people who were all, you know, from a bit more senior to a lot more senior than I was. So therefore, you know, I, I probably couldn't have, but I, but I still think I should. And when you think about it, you know, this is what I tell the people in my organization now, I do not pay you to agree with me. In fact, the opposite, right? I pay you to disagree with me. So, so that's lesson number one. And the end of sort of the, the wider thing around that is, you know, what you see in lots of organizations, which and not only in finance, but the whole idea of groupthink is, you know, it's a, it's a very dangerous, a very powerful, but very dangerous thing that, that was clearly clearly evidently in action here, right? Mm. And it's one of those behavioral finance biases or traits that, that behavioral finance talks it about. It could be well. going on right now across the world. I'm sure it is. <laughs> so that's lesson number one, right? Stand, you know, as, as an analyst, stand up for your convictions and as a group, try and avoid that group yep. thing, right? The next one kind of goes around, you know, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, right? If something feels risky, it probably is. And the idea, but this time it's different, it usually isn't, right? <laughs> and so if you kind of take a step back and say, well, you know, what's happening here? I think the answer is, you know, as a group, and with that I mean, you know, the sell side, the managers of the bank and the investors and the investment analysts, right? all of them together as a group are seeing these events unfold. They want to like it and therefore they make up all the arguments that, that make it all right. 
Mm. And it's kind of, you know, you saw similar things with the, with the dot-com bubble, right? Yep. You know, like, oh, you know, this internet company is worth 100 times sales, but don't worry about that. It's not about the sales. It's about the eyeballs. Well, guess what? You know, no, it's not, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's a similar thing there, right? So in the end, things are not different. Got right? it. The third one, which, you know, I may partially offend some people here, but it's the culture thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, by no means do I want to suggest that cultures are the same all over the world or that cultures don't matter. But what I would say is culture doesn't trump cash, right? You may say, you know, these people don't like to lose face. Yeah, that's true. But if they don't have the money, guess what? They ain't going to pay, right? And it's just when you look back and it's like, this is not a deep, complicated lesson. This is pretty obvious. But, you know, at the time, like, ah, oh, you know, don't worry about that. They don't want to lose face, right? Mm, mm. Remarkable, right? Yeah, Isn't yeah. It? So yeah, so I think so I think those are those, those are, are probably the main lessons I I took out of that. Culture doesn't trump cash. This time is not different. And stand up for your conviction and try to avoid groupthink. Let me summarize some of the things that I take away. I mean, one of the things that I take away from this is the the frustration of assessing risk and risk management because Basically, you hear a lot around the financial world and just around life in general. So what are the risks? Okay, well, risk A is this, but we got that covered. Risk B is this, but we got that covered. Not going to happen. Risk C is this, but we got that covered. And of course, that's the job of risk management ultimately is to say we know the risks and we've got them covered. But the reality is, is that a lot of times it just doesn't, happen that way right. and it it's right. just like one of the right. most difficult thing because you know you're not going to tell people don't tell me what the risks are and how to cover them you want them <laughs> to talk about that but yet right. there's this overconfidence in that that you know we've got it covered right right and it's i mean overconfidence is another another word that comes up in behavioral finance all the time right mm. um in fact i was i was just i did a guest lecture at a behavioral finance course in canada just a couple of days ago, and you know, we we talked about overconfidence there. And the main guy who's running the course was telling me he, he took this test where you know, you're asked to to estimate something and then give a confidence interval, right? Mm. Okay, sorry, and give your ninety percent confidence interval. Mm. And you know what this test shows is that most people, you know, they'll get three out of the ten outcomes fall in their 90% confidence interval, right? So it should be nine out, of, nine out of 10 rather than three out of 10, right? So people, they have a very poor grasp of how, how certain the outcome is that they're predicting. Very mm. poor grasp. Yeah, right? yeah. And the other thing that I took away is the importance of, this is going to sound kind of silly, but the importance of making your buy-sell decision after your research. And I think in this case, you know, one of the little clues that you talked about is, you know, you're relatively junior. There was a senior guy there. How do we get this, you know, position? And then you go away to do your model. And it's very, it's a very subtle thing. Sometimes it's very obvious other times, but it's really important from an analyst perspective 
that when you're analyzing a situation that you truly do not make your buy-sell decision until the end of your research mm -hmm. process. Right. I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Andrew. I think with that particular piece of research, consciously or unconsciously, doesn't matter. But I went out to create a report that ended up in a buy recommendation. Right. And I think that's, in hindsight, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Right. And that cost us, right? That's, yep. That was clearly the wrong thing to do. And just for a little humor, I'm imagining your office and the staff come in in the morning and you said, wasn't that a great game last night? No. <laughs> Are you ready for a great day today? No. You think that's a buy? No. That's a sell. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm laughing because you said I hire people to disagree with me, but I remember uh, a story of one of my clients and he used to like yell at me when I first started working for him and I was advising him about some financial stuff and he would yell at me and I would be in kind of shock as I'd listen to this. And then over time I watched him and I realized that this was his way of processing. He was actually pushing people because he was an aggregator and he was bringing this whole world of software together in a very brilliant way. And so he really pushed back on people very hard. And if they, if they crumpled, then he knew, okay, don't incorporate that into my system. Right. So he was yeah. kind of stress testing it. But at one point I remember saying, you know, the other thing I said to him is just like, look, if, if, I, if I just agree with everything you say and I don't bring you any opposing views, you know, what value am I? And I think it was that mm. point where he kind of realized, yeah, okay. I got to stop beating up my financial advisor. <laughs> All right. So based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Look, so it's all around the team dynamics, right? And it's the, the one that I, that I mentioned, the group think is the most obvious out of this story. But mm. I think it's, it's wider. There's a wider thing which I've learned through my study of behavioral finance, which is like these biases that we all have, it is very hard to recognize them in yourself. It is impossible to overcome them in yourself. You cannot do And part of the academic research is actually about sitting about proving that, right? So you have people that say, you know, oh, you know, people overreact to bad news. I've, I've learned that. So I'm not going to do that. Right? <laughs> well, that. It just doesn't work. Right. So the team is there. So you, but, but you can actually recognize these biases and point them out in other people. Mm. So the only way to actually get around these human fallacies or, or, you know, biases, et cetera, is by working in a team and agree and encourage to criticize each other and kind of point out, you know, well, you know, you're telling me this story, you know, confirmation bias, not a great one, right? You like a stock, you read, you read an article in the newspaper and there's three good things, there's three bad things about the stock and you only remember the three good things at the end of the article, right? So your team members are there to say, I read the article too, why didn't you mention these other three things, right? That's so that, you know, to be successful at investing, I'm a firm believer now in, you know, a team approach if the team is set up properly. Got it. Um, All right. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? 
Look, the company I'm with, we have a great vision of turning something small that we have now into something bigger. And my goal is to, to actually see that through. Great. All right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Wim, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones who's turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, yeah. Learn from my mistakes, as you say, somewhere on your literature. Don't learn from your own mistakes. Learn from somebody else's. So please, all listeners, learn from these mistakes. You. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you, Wim. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.